Welcome everyone. In just a few minutes, you will be hearing the sermon that was preached during the morning worship service at Victory Baptist Church on Sunday, June the 2nd, 2019. Now, I decided to record this introduction because after I arrived home after preaching that sermon, I decided to listen to it again. And the reason I decided to listen to it again is because I wasn't super happy with the sermon. I thought there was some parts that was kind of awkward. It was kind of hard getting to, to where I wanted to go. And then we didn't get as far as I wanted to go. So there was a part of me that thought, you know what, I'll just delete the sermon and not post it online. However, Sunday morning at Victory Baptist Church, we're doing a verse-by-verse study on the book of Romans. So if I delete one of those sermons, then there's kind of a, a hole in our verse-by-verse study that is being posted online. And we had people uh, at Victory Baptist Church who were not in attendance. They, they missed because of different reasons, work and different things. So then they would miss that sermon completely. So I thought, well, I need to post this online, but I'm not happy with it. So, well, let me listen to it and, and see how bad it is. And then as I was listening, there, there, was a, there was a section in the sermon that I was like, oh no, I cannot post this online unless, unless I definitely record an introduction and explain to everyone. Sometimes people, people, a lot of times maybe a church member doesn't understand this, but let me try to explain something from a pastor perspective. When you're standing behind the pulpit, right, and you say certain things, uh, sometimes the way you think it sounds may not be the way other people hear it. I think you can understand that. And especially when you're a part of a small church. I mean, Victory Baptist Church is a very small church. And so the, the teaching is in a kind of a very personable way, sometimes in a very conversational way. Sometimes I ask lots of questions and feedback. Um, and, and there's just a lot of freedom. I, I, I feel a lot of freedom. I can say things in a very blunt way. It's like, it's like very much a family situation. I can be blunt. I can be direct. And they take it. Um, a certain way. People online always takes it a different way. They're like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he said that. But it, it's, it's a different atmosphere when you're there. <laughs> well, this morning at Victory Baptist Church, there's an individual. Well, this is what happened. I'd asked everyone at church to arrive uh, Sunday, June the 2nd, 2019, to arrive at church with five passages of scripture from the Old Testament that that seem to have a promise of the gospel in those verses. Like, find me a passage of scripture in the Old Testament, five of them, where the verses contain, or the verse contains a promise of the gospel in the New Testament, all right? So, and I'm not going to explain everything that was going on, but I asked everyone to show up. Well, during the sermon, I want people to start giving me their five. So, I, I'm kind of going, okay, you got yours, you got yours. And then, a husband... Stephen looks at me and says, Sarah, Sarah has five, but Sarah had just gotten up from where she sits to walk out, out of the sanctuary to a hallway. She shut the door because she received a phone call. All right. But I knew where she was back there. She could hear from the speakers that are in different locations in the back section of the church. So I yell, Sarah, get off the phone. All right. 
Now, it's just a joke. I know she will hear it. I'm not mad that she's on the phone. It's not some kind of rebuke. It's not me yelling at a teenager for being on the phone. There's nothing like that going on. But when you hear it in the sermon, you're going to think, he literally just yelled at someone to get off their phone. No, that no, it's a joke. Everyone there understood it. Well, when she walked, when she walks back in, I said, "Hey, did you like me yelling at you?" You'll hear me saying that, and then you'll hear me making comments about cell phones throughout the sermon because for some reason everyone had their ringer on and phones are going off left to right. So I did, I did get everyone a hard time, but there was no like, everyone stop with your phone. It wasn't like some yelling or rebuke. But when you hear it. I had headphones on when I was listening and all of a sudden I yell, Sarah, get off the phone. And I'm like, whoa, people online are not going to understand what just happened. It was a joke. I wasn't mad at anyone. No one was being rebuked for phone use. No one, nothing like that was happening. Uh, Yes, some churches, pastors get very upset when people have their phones. I do not. A large portion of the, uh, a large number of people in my church have their phones out because they 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 use it to look up Greek or Hebrew. Um, they they sometimes use it. Uh, some even are using a Bible on their phone, and they're using that for their Bible. It doesn't bother me in any way, shape, or form. I know that there's a lot of controversy in some churches over phone usage. I don't. It doesn't bother me now. Now, if they're sitting there playing a game, it does bother me. But again. I, you know, um, I'm I'm pretty. Uh, I'm going to preach the scriptures, and I if I'm going to rebuke you, I'm going to rebuke. If I'm going to give a harsh, mean rebuke, it's going to be about based off something in the scripture. It's going to be about not caring about the body. It's going to be about something spiritual. I'm not going to get into an issue over over that. I have to choose my battles carefully. All pastors have to choose their battles carefully, or you'll literally be fighting all the time. So. Uh, the phone thing, there was no rebuke intended. So when you hear it, please, 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 please don't uh, misinterpret it in any way, shape, or form. At the very beginning of the sermon you're going to hear, I'm talking about a wild Sunday school um, a wild Sunday school class. They, uh, the hour before this sermon, we were dealing with the canons of Dort, the Synod of Dort. And yes, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a crazy class. Um, man, the conversation was going back and forth. There was, there was just, it was just crazy. Um, because I mean, some, some of the people there are not, they don't understand some of these concepts. So you're trying to help them understand it. People are asking questions and it's just, it was, it was crazy, but it was all said and done. Everyone afterward had all kinds of questions. It turned out to be, it, it from, from the people present, it was a good experience from people listening online. It probably would come across as a negative experience. So I don't know if I'm going to post that one, but, um, but I just, you know, I just want you to understand what happened. I don't want it to, because if I don't, if I don't give this introduction, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be listening and all you're going to be going is, man, if I was there and some pastor yelled at me to get off my phone, I'd never go back. That was not what was happening in any way, shape or form. So no one at Victory Baptist Church that no one's emotions were injured, no one was psychologically scarred, no one was being threatened verbally for the use of a cell phone, okay? So please do not take it that way, all right? The ser- I'm still not happy with this sermon. It is a little awkward because we're trying to look at some of these. I'm trying to set everyone up to give me these passages from the Old Testament, try to demonstrate 
that how the New Testament uses these Old Testament passages sometimes is very difficult from a hermeneutical perspective because I begin to introduce a hermeneutical look on how we should uh, understand how New Testament writers are using Old Testament passages. You'll hear all of that. Here is the sermon. Thank you for giving me a little bit of time to explain that. I did not want this sermon to get deleted, so I'm going to post it. I apologize for any... I apologize for anything in the sermon that doesn't quite work. I'm not super happy with it, but I think there's enough here that you'll at least get an introduction to what we're going to be working on tonight at Victory Baptist Church, because I'm recording this introduction on Sunday, June the 2nd. So this evening at VBC, we're going to pick up the subject again, and I think there, there it will be far more put together and organized in a, in a, um, a more cohesive way. And hopefully you will benefit greatly from it. But you may need this introduction. So here we go. Let's go back to the sanctuary at Victory Baptist Church on Sunday, June the 2nd, 2019. As we start dealing with the book of Romans and how the New Testament uses Old Testament scripture. And the hermeneutical situations that that can create for people. And then tonight we'll start looking at all the different hermeneutical views. Well, I introduce those hermeneutical views and those ways of trying to resolve it. Here we go. Sanctuary Victory Baptist Church, be ready to listen. All right, everybody take a deep breath after a wild Sunday school lesson that created all kinds of controversy, a wild Sunday school lesson that will probably never be posted online, all right? Um, we, we dealt with some controversial issues there. I know, I know that it's a subject that um, is hard for people to grasp, I know it goes against everything that some people have ever been taught within Christianity. We start dealing with God's eternal decrees, uh, election, free will. Um, and I know my perspective on free will is radical. Um, so just make sure everyone understands this. When we deal with, with, with free will, I just want to say this. You have to deal with free will from a, like the idea of election and salvation. Um, that's one part of it. But then there's a philosophical idea of free will. Just understand that my philosophical understanding of free will um, is separate from trying to understand how free will plays out or doesn't play out in salvation. Does that make sense? Like, I have to understand what the Bible speaks about my ability to be saved versus God having to choose me. That's one concept. Then over here, if you and I want to have a, a philosophical discussion about free will, just so that you know, no one in this room will agree with me, I don't believe anyone has a free will philosophically. I don't believe it exists. I think it's an illusion made up by man. Because no one's will is autonomous because you're so influenced by so many factors. You, you say, I like this. Do you really like it? Why do you like it? Like, I mean, you just, just, that's, that's, you, you just watch teenagers a operate. Do they really do what they do because they do it or they say they do it? Like, I've got to be my own person, mom and dad. And for some reason, my own person looks like all these other people. Is that free? Right? So when, when a I know y'all would not like it, but <clears throat> I would say before you start, if you want to debate me on the philosophical aspect of free will, read a philosophy book on it before we have a dis discussion because I'll be communicating about concepts that you've never even considered. And it will be like, we'll be talking what? Past each other. All right. So, but that's separate from the issue of free wills that plays out in salvation. Does that make sense? 
All right. Now, obviously, you know where I'm, I'm going to go, right? Or obviously, you know where I'm going to go, but I try to keep the two separate. I usually don't offer my philosophical concept on free will. Uh, I, I usually just keep that to my, in fact, y'all have been here? And I've never, I've never given my uh, philosophical understanding of free will because I think that's a separate, a separate issue. So just make sure you understand that. All right. Now, if you ever want to talk to me about it, that's fine. Um, just read a philosophy book and then tell me which one you read, and then, we'll, and then I'll tell you if it was a good one or a bad one, and then we'll go. Okay. All right. Here we go. Are we ready? The book of Romans. Everyone in this room right now is supposed to have five Old Testament passages that give us a promise of the gospel. All right, um, I'm not even going to ask who didn't do it, okay? And now don't tell me you couldn't listen to it because literally the audio is posted everywhere on the, I mean, it's like 18 different places. Spotify, for crying out loud, a music streaming service, our, our messages are, okay? So, so I don't want to hear I couldn't get it to work because I've taken away that excuse a hundred different ways, okay? So I don't even want to, no one ever use that excuse again, okay? You didn't because you didn't. All right. But you're supposed to have five Old Testament passages. The reason why is because that was actually a setup. All right. I was setting you up because what I was going to do is have everyone give me their five. Now, Stacy sent me a text message this morning telling me if they didn't have their five, don't be mean. And I'm like, who, me? <laughs> me? Be mean because I asked people to look up five passages and they didn't. Okay, so and I even and I even gave everyone an easy out. Yesterday I posted every Old Testament citation in the Book of Romans. So all you had to do is go through and find five that look like promises of the gospel. I, I gave you the end. And Twyla's like, I'm not going to use it because I felt like that's cheating. I'm like, cheat, cheat. I'm begging you, cheat. Okay, do whatever is necessary. But here is the reason why. We are coming to Romans chapter 1, verse 2. And as I was thinking about this passage, I thought, what's the way to handle this? And I started reading all the commentaries, and I hate all of them. So let's, let's, let's build this, and we'll see how far we can get. All right, Stephen, you have to leave at what time? Noon, okay. Oh, yeah, it's 30 minutes. I'm going to try to give as much of this as I can within 30 minutes. All right. Now, he'll probably still have to leave, and I'll probably still be talking, but I'm going to try. All right. Here we go. Romans chapter 1. We started with an, uh, kind of a acknowledging that there's an, introduc an introductory section in Romans chapter 1. We think it goes down to verse 14, 15, 16, maybe down to 17. Right? We haven't established where we want to end it. Everybody remember that? But we said we believe the key verse of the book of Romans is verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul wants them to understand he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now the gospel, we have argued, is the subject of the entire book. All right? But the first thing he does in Romans chapter 1 verse 1 is he introduces himself. Paul, the author, introduces himself, and he introduces himself by using four identifiers. Those four identifiers are, number one, Paul, which demonstrates the power of the gospel because he used to be Saul, and now he became Paul. And we won't go through all the differences there are there. Number two, servant. He now is a servant of Christ. He is a slave to Christ. He is serving the desire and the will of someone else. He's giving up his own. Number three, an apostle. He's an apostle, right? Number four, 
separated. He is separated for a purpose. In other words, whatever Paul wanted doesn't matter. He was separated. All of those four things should be convicting to all of you because you could ask yourself those same things. But he is separated unto something specifically mentioned at the end of verse 1, which introduces the subject to the whole book. He is separated unto the gospel. He is separated unto the gospel. Now, this is very important. We looked, we, last week, we spent an entire, a, a large amount of time looking at the Greek word, euangelion. We went back to the uh, Septuagint. And I really emphasized, and, I wanna, and I'm going to make this point very clear. I want everyone to listen to me. When we're working through Romans, we're going to be getting a theological understanding of the gospel. And everybody here could be all really smart about the gospel. But last week's point was you have to become gospel-minded. Gospel-minded in how you view lost people and gospel-minded in how you view Christians. And if we're not going to be gospel-minded, it makes no sense in spending 10 years trying to become smart about the gospel. Intelligence about the gospel, but while not being gospel-minded, is useless. Right? So I really emphasize that. All right, now, with all of that said, that opened the door for verse 2. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which, this gospel, he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel had been promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. What scriptures is he referring to? The Old Testament. So the gospel had been promised beforehand in the Old Testament. So everyone was given. In fact, I, I think the first recording was Monday, I think, where I told everyone, because you showed up Wednesday ready to go. So I think Monday is when I gave the first recording saying, hey, find five passages. Then on a Saturday, I recorded another one saying, hey, find five passages from the Old Testament that you can say that is a promise of the gospel. All right? Now, who, I, I don't, I don't want to know who didn't, but who has five? Okay, Sarah, Sarah, get off the phone. Okay, all right, all right that's good. That's smart. She shouldn't share. All right, all right, give me, all right, that's fine. That's, I don't care if y'all all got together at, at a coffee shop and did it. I don't care who, who did it. All right. Okay, that's fine. All right, let's look at this. The first one they gave was, you like me yelling at you to get off the phone? Okay, people online are like, what is going on? Okay, now people and their cell phones during a church service. Okay, first, first Chronicles chapter, oh, Lincoln called you. Okay, that's, that's uh, Seth, take care of your kids. Okay, first Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. All right, now again, Please note, the whole exercise was to set you up, all right? It's a setup, but it's a setup, not in a mean way, right? It's, not, it's a nice way, right? First Chronicles chapter 17, because I also just want to laugh and see what y'all chose. Okay, First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 11. And it shall come to pass, when thy days be expired, that thou, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, 
that I will rise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it away from him that was before thee. All right. All right. First of all, let, did you say 14? Okay, it needs to be 14. All right. Um, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. Okay, yeah, I know why you wanted 14. Okay, okay that, I, that makes sense. Because 14 is cited. Nobody knows? Y'all give me 14? Is it cited in the New Testament or made a reference to? Luke! Oh, very good. All right, all right. So, but we'll, we'll look at that in a second. Okay. So let's do this. First, from, a from an Old Testament perspective, what is being promised here? Okay, a king first. Okay, well, let's start with a king. A king, correct, who will do what? Build him a house, right, and sit upon the throne. Agreed? All right. And so in the Old Testament historical context, this is a reference to Solomon. Agreed? Well, obviously it has to be because he built a house. Right? But there's some more language here that speaks of this kingdom lasting forever. Now we can get into an issue here. So what is going on? So why did y'all choose this as a promise of the gospel? Because y'all are reading this to be a promise of what? Okay, a kingdom? Are y'all trying to see in this a messianic prophecy? Right. Because this could kind of, some would use this more as an uh, eschatology promise and not a gospel promise, okay, but uh, you're, you're tying it to the Messiah? Uh, uh, okay, you did? Okay, all right. This, someone said this uh, passage is referenced in Luke. Okay, Does anybody know where? Okay, Luke chapter 1, 33, I believe, right, okay. I think Brenda said. Luke chapter 1. All right, Luke chapter 1. We'll go back, uh, verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. They're saying that that is at least referenced or borrowed from this promise in Chronicles. Okay, now, a couple of things. Please note, when y'all chose this one, did you choose it because you think it was kind of referenced in Luke or did you choose it for a different reason? How did y'all come across it? And, and I'm doing all this, I know this is kind of an awkward start, but you'll see why we're doing this here in a minute. It'll make sense. Well, like, how did you come across this passage as a possible gospel promise? A promise of a, of a future kingdom, okay. All right, so you weren't... Okay, gotcha. Did you, uh, did you uh, know that there was a possible reference or at least an allusion to it in Luke? 
You didn't. Okay. So y'all didn't choose it because you thought there. You just thought, well, this is promising a king, a kingdom forever. This is pro Jesus. Okay. Kingdom. Okay. The Messiah. Okay. So you're doing more of the messianic prom promise. Okay. That's fine. All right. Second one. Okay. I don't think anybody else did. Okay. Oh, uh, what do you have? Isaiah 59, 20. All right. Isaiah 59, 20. I want you to know what we're doing here. Uh, trust me. I listened to, I don't know how many sermons on Romans 1, 2, and nobody did this. So, Isaiah 59, 20. All right, here we go. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression. And uh, Jacob saith the Lord. And you said 21? As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Okay? Why did you choose this one? Redeemer, okay. Zion, okay. All right, now, from a... If you place this in the context of the Old Testament, what could this possibly be referencing? Dealing with the re restoration or coming out of bondage for them, for Israel, right? Okay. Now, is there a reason, uh, is this cited in the New Testament? Okay. This is, goes to Romans 10. Romans 10, 13, you said? Romans 10, 13? Yeah, I think a Romans 11 makes more sense. Okay, Romans 11, is it verse 26? And so all Israel shall be saved. It, as it is written, oh, there it is, there shall come out of, the, out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Guess what? Okay, now I believe this is a gospel message, right, in the sense that it's speaking of deliverance and redemption. So it's going at the core of meaning of the word, but this is dealing with the salvation of Israel in the, well, we would have to argue the future, right? We have to argue the future. So it gives a, an idea, but please note, um, it is used in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the quote of that verse is used for Israel. Yeah. Right, so that's the point. Now, but it does, I want to make sure we understand, it does get to the kind of, of euangelion. There is something going on there, gospel-like, but it's dealing with the salvation of Israel. So, okay, all right. This one kind of stays, this one actually stays pretty consistent with how it's used in Isaiah is how it's used in Romans. Okay, all right, we had another one. Sarah, did you have some? Isaiah 28.16, okay. Isaiah 28.16, all right. This is fun to see what y'all came up with. 28.16, all right. 28.16 and those cell phones, I'm telling you. I'm going to ban all cell phones here. Okay, all right. Now, Isaiah 28.16, all right. 
<laughs> it's an Android. Okay. <laughs> Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. All right. Why did you choose this one? All right, it is repeated a lot throughout the New Testament. That is a very valid point, okay? It's connected to Jesus, all right? So it's a messianic promise, okay? Never be dismayed, okay? That there's kind of a gospel promise you're attaching to it as well. Okay, now, let me ask this question. The passage in Isaiah that we just read, how is it being used in the scriptural context from which it is found? Is it referring to some future thing or does it have an immediate understanding? Well, what, if, you, if you say it does, what is it? Well, now you're going to 1 Peter. That's not going to give me the historical context. Yeah, that's going to give me the New Testament explanation. I'm, I'm trying to understand. How is it being used in Isaiah? Does anybody know? You got some kind of restoration going on, correct? Yeah. Agreed? Some kind of promise of restoration? Now, again, trying to understand what the context is here. Okay. That, that's, this is kind of getting us where I, I want us to go here. All right. Here, here's the point I want you to see. And that we, can, we may look up some more later because we're going to be looking at a lot of Old Testament references. Um, here's something I want you to see and something I want you to understand. You ready? Okay. Mo I'll give you an example of how most commentaries handle Romans chapter 1, verse 2. You ready? This gospel is not something new. It is not a clever invention of man. Paul's world was much like ours, with people liked new teachings and doctrines. Nevertheless, Paul didn't bring something new, but something very old in the plan of God. The end. Okay. Yeah, that's not very helpful, right? So, why did I want you to go look up all of these passages and, and do all of this? Well, here's the reason why. The Old Testament is quoted nearly 300 times in the New Testament. Although it's difficult to know for certain because the citations do not always use exact wording. The challenges that these quotations present for the modern day interpreter is, stop right there. When you see how the Old Testament is cited in the New Testament, it should present to every Christian who has ever read the Bible for more than 15 minutes a problem. What is that problem? Thank you! Sometimes it seems they completely ripped it out of context. You're like, what did you just do 
with this pattern. That's why I was trying to ask you, well, what's the historical context? What's the his now, some of those, there wasn't an issue. The one you cited is right there in Romans 11, dealing with the exact same thing, the salvation of Israel. Now, some will argue they're ripping it out of context because some want to make the Israel in Romans 11 different than the Israel... <laughs> That it's like, like, I don't know what, that, that like now, now, you're, now it's going crazy. But in some cases you're like, like the one Sarah cited. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, is the foundation thing they're talking about in Isaiah the same as they're using it in the New Testament? In the New Testament, they're referring to it as Jesus. Is that what Isaiah meant? What's the context? Well, the context is about an, a deliverance. Like, what, what, what's going on? All right, there is an issue. Let me, let me continue to read. From this, I'll read this whole statement again. The Old Testament is uh, quoted nearly 300 times in the New Testament, although it's difficult to know for certain because the citations do not always use exact wording. The challenge that these uh, citations or quotations present for the modern day interpreter is that the New Testament writers often cite the Old Testament in ways that are unexpected and that seems to depart from the intended meaning of the Old Testament. Testament passage in its original context. All right, everyone's phone's going off today. All right, we have some like phone uh, curse going on. Okay, all right. Now, here's the thing. As Christians, when you are reading the New Testament and they cite an Old Testament passage, now come on, let's just be, let's just like be real here. Most Christians don't do what? Don't even look it up. And if they do look it up, what, what do they look it up for? Maybe because I assigned it, okay? I don't even know why mo mo most people don't, so you don't even know to tell me why you would look it up because you don't look it up. Okay. Oh, to verify it? Okay, good. All right, that's good. All right, to, to verify, that's good. Uh, that's, at least that's one thing. But when you verify, you just look and go, oh, yeah, it's the same. And that's it. You know what no one rarely ever does? What? 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 Let's, I'll give you some examples from some, uh, a, a, a seminary paper. All right? You ready? Okay. We'll see um, what they do here. Look at uh, Hosea, or no, go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Everybody there? All right, we'll go back to verse 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, started into Egypt. Now, we know what's happening, right? Joseph gets married, Jesus, they go down to Egypt, right? Why do they do this? Yeah, Herod's going to start uh, killing people. All right, verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now that passage has been read a billion times in churches every Christmas season. Right? Of course, Christians don't care to ever think this through. That's quoted from where? Hosea chapter 11. Someone go look at Hosea chapter 11. Tell me what's going on and see if that makes any sense.
what? Hosea is referring to what? Israel coming out of Egypt. Matthew's using it as a fulfillment of prophecy that he goes into Egypt. So that I guess he can come out of Egypt? But how does that... What? Now, nobody here, when I present this problem, y'all look at me and I know what you're saying. Okay, get to the point because I don't see a problem. Right? I don't know how you don't see... How, does no one see a problem? Right, but Hosea 11 is not even referring. It's referring to something in the past. When Israel was a child... When Israel was brought up, like this is not, but Matthew comes along and saying, hey, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, wait, wait. Hosea wasn't speaking of it as a prophecy. He was speaking of it as a historical fact. So they're taking a historical fact and citing it as prophetic. Do you not know how complicated and convoluted that makes now understanding the Old Testament? So no, wait, when I read a historical fact, do I read the historical fact as a prophetic? How do I read it? Right. But the, the how do you make that determination is, 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 okay, yeah, that's where the problem gets. So let me uh, read how they, what they stated here. For example, Hosea 11.1 1 is quoted in Matthew 2.15, but its original context, the Old Testament prophet appears to be looking back 700 years to Israel's exodus out of Egypt rather than 700 years forward to Christ's return from Egypt after Herod's death. The purpose of this section is to provide a brief introduction to some of the ways that the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament is explained as well as some of the possible implications this has for biblical hermeneutics. All right, here's what we need to do. The book of Romans has, I, 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 was, I was counting on the recording, I stopped counting because I figured it was going to be counting forever. I think it's like 70 to 80 Old Testament references. Some of them are allusions, some of them are, are direct citations. So that means when we get into the book of Romans, we're going to be dealing with a lot of Old Testament verses, correct? Okay, now... Romans 1-2 gives us the opportunity because they want us to consider that the Old Testament promised this thing that we're getting ready to talk about, which is the gospel. Paul, in talking about the gospel, is going to be citing the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. So what we need to do is, okay, how do we understand the Old Testament? How do we understand the use of the Old Testament in, in the New Testament? And what are the hermeneutical principles we use to figure this out? Now, as soon as I say that, and, and trust me, and, and, and again, I have to just challenge you on this because this is, this is, the, this is the point of uh, learning. Remember, remember my professor used to always tell me, education is the process by demonstrating to you how dumb you really are. That's the whole reason you get an education. Not to get smarter, but to be shown how dumb you really are, right? Because if the teacher doesn't show you that you're dumb, that's not an education, right? That's a self-esteem class, right? Now, I don't need self-esteem. I need to be demonstrated. I need to constantly be reminded of how little I do know, right? And that philosophy obviously carries over into how I teach, right? Because I constantly try to show you what you don't know, right? But here's the thing. A lot of times we'll have some, we'll, we'll be talking about something in the Old Testament. We'll talk about how it's used in the New Testament. And sometimes on occasion, I know it's rare, but sometimes you guys like to start 
discussing or debating. Now, sometimes I kind of want to raise my hand and go, well, while you're debating me, I got a question. What hermeneutical principle are you using in relation to the Old Testament passage being cited in the New Testament? Go. And if I was to ask you that question, what would you tell me? You don't know, but yet, how, why are you arguing? Do you know how many different ways you can do this? I will count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, at least seven. There's seven approaches to how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Seven hermeneutical ideas here. Most of you have probably never heard of these seven. So, what we're going to do is I'm just going to list these seven for you. You can write them down, and then we're going to stop. I'm not even going to explain them. And then tonight, we dig into this, because we need a break from uh, the uh, canons of Dort. Okay? All right. Because that was a wild Sunday school class. All right? So here we go. You ready? Here's number one. The first one is called the census planor view. And now you're going to need me to spell that. Obviously, everybody knows census, right? S-E-N-S-U-S. Planor is P-L-E-N-I-O-R. Census planor view. Let me spell that again. Everybody got the first word? Census, second word, planor, P-L-E-N-I-O-R. Does anybody know what census planor means? No one. Okay, kind of. Oh, okay. Uh, in hermeneutics, we say the fuller sense. The fuller sense. Okay, that's good. I didn't know it was used in other ways. All right, census planor, the fuller sense. I'm not going to explain what that means. Number two, everybody ready for number two? The Jewish exegetical method. The Jewish exegetical method. Tell me when you have it and I can move forward. I'm trying to get this done so Stephen can leave. All right, the Jewish ex exegetical method. The Jewish exegetical method. Number three, the canonical reinterpretation view. The canonical reinterpretation view. The canonical reinterpretation view. Next, the full human intent view. The full human intent view. Next, the eclectic view. The eclectic view. Next, the analogical. The analogical view or the analogical use is sometimes the way we put it. The analogical. Analogical, and, and we'll, we'll spell these out tonight in greater detail. Next, the, uh, the typological. Topological, right. Type, typological, right. However you say it. Typological, right. Everybody got that? 
All right? And then that's it. That's it. That we, I have some guidelines here, but we won't go through, we'll get to those guidelines later. All right? So let's say them all together. Number one, census plenor. Number two, Jewish exegetical. Number three, okay, though, okay, canonical reinterpretation. Four, full human intent. Number five, eclectic. Number six, analogical and typological. All right, everybody got it? Those are the views. Now, again, does anybody even know any of those views? All right, now we have to get into what the, how that, it, still got to get into how it's used. Right, okay. What I want you to understand is, so much time in your Christian life, you've been reading, and you've been interpreting, and you don't even know what view you're using. So like if we start, and see sometimes this is where, sometimes from a pastoral standpoint, like especially if, if, you've, if you have some knowledge, sometimes that's why arguing some things is so frustrating, because it's like, okay, now you want to argue, like, okay, well, all right, what, which view are you using? And then you'll look at me like, I don't know what view. Well, then how can we have an argument? How can we have a debate? Oh, that's very good. All right. The difference is this. You have general hermeneutical principles that can be generally applied maybe from Genesis to Revelation in a general sense. But you have certain situations that occur like using Hosea 11 and Matthew 2, and you're like, what is going on? That no uh, typical hermeneutical, you may not really be able to come up with a good hermeneutical answer, right? Because I, I, because my, my hermeneutics is going to tell me, figure out the context in Hosea. That doesn't fit here. Now, what Christians typically do is it doesn't matter. Matthew used it, problem solved. But from a hermeneutical standpoint, that's not an answer. So, sometimes you have to establish additional principles for specific kind, like how maybe sometimes there's specific principles for dealing with poetry or specific principles with dealing with proverbs, right? That your general hermeneutical principles may not res resolve. Does that? Oh, the historical, grammatical, literal. Yeah, you still may be holding on to that, but you have to acknowledge that. That. Yeah, that's not answer. The question here is, I got to figure out. Okay, what? How did Matthew use it this way? How did like? What is he thinking? Like, how does this work? Because on one hand, some pastors will use, will see the historical, grammatical, literal doesn't work. He's using Hosea 11, clearly not a historical, grammatical, literal way, so it doesn't work. Uh, you're like, whoa, 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 wait, before you want to throw out an entire system, maybe we can modify some hermeneutical, hermeneutical understandings and see if we can come up with an answer here. Now, there's no reason we should say, Matthew was wrong, or the author of Matthew. We should, we, there's no reason we should say he shouldn't have used it because we believe he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So now we're holding, since we hold to an inspiration view, we have to understand how it's used in Matthew and we still maintain biblical inspiration. Now, liberal professors will say, destroys the doctrine of inspiration. He's using it incorrectly. That the right, the guy, a liberal professor will say, the, like if you went to some seminaries, you'll have a professor who will quote this to you and go, come on, prove to me inspiration now. He, clearly he's using it wrong. Because it makes no sense. 
right? Okay, so you're like, ah, oh, what do I do? So you gotta have you gotta have a view that tries to answer it. That's what this attempt is. You have to do it with apocryphal, uh, um, uh, not apocryphal, um, end times uh, text. What's? Oh man, I'm forgetting the word. In eschatology, there's an, uh, um, a type of literature that that those books do. Not apocryphal. I don't, I'm going to forget it now because my mind's going a hundred million different ways. But you get the idea. There's certain kinds of literature within the Bible, right? There's poetry. There's apocalyptic. There we go. Apocalyptic literature requires a, a kind of nuance because apocalyptic literature is sometimes historical, grammatical, literal. I don't know what's going on here, right? I don't know what's happening here. Like, what do I do with this, right? And so sometimes you got to go, okay, how does it fit within that general understanding? Does that make sense? Like, because the book, the Bible is filled with so many kinds of literature that you've got to know how to handle this. So those who study hermeneutics are always trying to figure out what do we do because they'll ask these kinds of questions. The problem is the average church member, and it's just weird. Like, this uh, part of what I was reading is from a seminary paper written for seminary students by a professor. Well, what's the point of teaching that in seminary if it's never going to get to the pulpit? Because other people, when they read uh, Matthew, are like, well, he's quoting from Hosea. He fulfilled another prophecy. And everybody in the church says, eh, it's a sorry, it's a fulfillment. And, and so, and, but there, right, there's a few people who raise their hand and go, does no one see a problem? And the ones who raise their hand and say there's a problem are the ones everyone's like, boo, sit down, stop raising your hand, we don't care. Well, maybe you should. It's God's word, right? So, and, and why, why is it important to figure out, say, the Matthew passage? Why is that one important to figure out? Well, that's at the beginning of the, God, the New Testament, right? So if we start going, wait a minute, how are they using these Old Testament passages? Now it's going to become imperative because here's what happens. If I start seeing them use Old Testament passages that way, then when I start reading the Old Testament, do I interpret them the same way? Do I just not care about the historical context? And know what many pastors do? They don't care about the historical context. That points to Jesus. Points to Je everything points to Jesus. Right? And you're like, well, wait a minute. That's how you end up with people, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you, from Jeremiah. Well, how do they get that? They're using, they're, they're using a, an interpretive principle that they may have derived from how uh, the writers use it. Does that make sense? All right, so that's why we're going to go through this. I know this is not typical church stuff, but it's it should be typical church stuff because does, does everyone here read the Old Testament? Do you read the New Testament? Does the New Testament use the Old Testament? Well, we're getting ready to read a book. You're supposed to all be working on a book called Romans that uses it like, you know, 70-something times, I think. All right. Um, how, are, how is Paul going to use it? The just shall live by faith. Comes from Habakkuk. Well, was Habakkuk teaching justification by faith alone through grace alone? Paul's going to almost make the implication that he was. If I read Habakkuk, what am I going to get from that? Right? 
See, like, that, but every time you see an Old Testament citation, these are questions you should be asking, right? These are the kind of questions that a pastor should be getting on the phone. Go, hey, I was reading the Old Testament today, and I'm confused, right? These are the kind of phone calls you should get. You usually don't get those kind of phone calls, but those are the phone calls you should get because that, these raises deep questions. So we're going to go through these. Now, guess what's going to happen? We're going to go through these different views, and guess what we're going to discover? One, it's going to demonstrate that not all Christians agree even on how they do this. Oh, shocker. Disagreement within Christianity? I'm blown away. Right? Number two, what else is going to show? And, this is, and I'll end with this very controversial statement. And I know it's going to sound very uh, non-Protestant of me. Once again, it demonstrates that maybe, just maybe, the Bible is not as easy to understand as Protestants like to pretend that it is. Oh, wait, I recorded something about that yesterday, right? Because I was listening to Christian radio coming back from the Danzler's house and almost had a seizure on the side of the road. Okay? I probably shouldn't listen to Christian radio. Okay? Because I'm like, what are you talking about? It's not that simple. In other words, you have to sometimes learn skills. And after we even go through all this, and then, we're, then guess what we're going to have to do? How many, how many views did I give you? Guess, what, well, guess what's going to happen? You think everybody in here is going to agree on which view? <laughs> no. Okay. Oh, very good. Will every scripture, will all scriptures fit into one view? That's a great point. That's going to be very good. Like if I go through Matthew, Matthew may, one view may answer Matthew, but will another view answer this in, in Romans, right? Exactly, right. Or the, some of the passages y'all were citing. Right? Sarah was a good example because, yeah, it's all over the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And clearly it points to Jesus. There's no question. But wait a minute. How was it being used in Isaiah? To point to Jesus? Were they talking about something different? I don't know. Now, and some of the passages y'all cite, uh, y'all definitely, was definitely speaking of a, a, king, a kingdom that's going to last forever, and you can definitely see a possible Jesus being the only one able to fulfill that. All right, that makes sense. The one you cited... That yours is an, a, a good one because it proved this. Now that's an Old Testament passage cited about Israel, and it's cited in the New Testament about Israel. Okay, so that, that one worked uh, for a different reason. That one worked for a different reason. Uh, so, but that, what, what are we already seeing? There's the Old Testament is used all kinds of different ways in the New Testament, and that poses a hermeneutical problem. Does that make sense? So, but what we have to do is we have to, do, here's the, and here, and I'll end with, I guess I'll end with this question. I keep saying I'm going to end, and then I keep thinking of something else to say. All right, I do that sometimes, just once or twice. But, Sunday school was wild enough. We don't need, we don't need this church service to fall apart. Okay, um, but this is very important, very important for you to consider. However, New Testament writers use the Old Testament, is that a license for you to use it the same way? Yeah, you, I, I don't have an answer. You answer that. Did everybody hear the question? When, the way the New Testament writer, whenever we look at how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament, is that a license for how you are to use the Old Testament? I, I think, well, I, I don't think they do so, I don't think they do so purposely because they're never taught these, these issues, 
But if they're just kind of here, that, like if a pastor doesn't study this kind of stuff, and he was like, well, that's how Matthew used it, so there you go. That'll work. Like, just pick anything. Just pick anything in the Old Testament. Oh, that, that's, that's a fulfillment of Jesus. And you're like, what are you talking about? Or it's for us. Right. So, but, it's, but it does raise a legitimate question. We're going to see New Testament writers use the Old Testament in a number of ways. Does that, is that teaching us how to use it? Or do we simply say they used it that way because they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and we are not studying the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we have to use some more sound and provable means of interpretation, right? And how we interpret books, movies, art, etc., etc. Okay. Because Augustine, um, well, we still got to get back to Augustine. That's... We still need to get to good old Augustine because uh, uh, he, he's the one who wrote the hermeneutic textbook. And so when we need to get back, we may have to try to work this in somehow. I don't know how. We need more church services is what we need. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Uh, I'm glad that uh, even though some of these messages may never make it online, I'm glad that as a church we can... We, we're willing to deal with these kinds of issues and struggle with these kinds of issues. They're, these issues can't even be talked about in some churches. And we're dealing with the, the Council and Senate of Dort, which is so controversial. Um, we're dealing with issues about hermeneutics that many people don't even care about. Lord, I am so grateful, and I hope everyone here leaves knowing that they're not in a church that they're going to find anywhere else because other churches don't do this. And I pray that we are grateful for it and that we take advantage every time we're together to dig in and ask these kinds of questions and try to figure these kinds of things out. And I pray that we'll be here tonight to try to figure out how to understand the Old Testament. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...